0: Everybody. welcome, welcome to show 68 here on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here once again, not from Latvia, joined by my co-host Fernando Ulrich from Brazil.
1: Hey, hey, Matthew.
0: And today we're going to introduce our special guest, Adam Gibson. Adam is a technologist and blogs under the name Waxwing over at joinmarket.me. He is the maintainer of the site there and the JoinMarket software. Very excited to talk with him today about the ever-present topic of privacy in Bitcoin. Adam, thanks a lot for joining us and welcome to the show.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed uh, meeting you a couple years ago at the first Honey Badger uh, yeah. conference in Riga. I know you spent some time there in Latvia uh, prior. Yep. And I've listened to uh, some of your work on other podcasts and uh, and things you've done with TLS Notary and so on and so forth. So. I always thought that uh, you describing, you know, a lot of these technical issues in Bitcoin, a lot of those privacy issues, uh, it it was very clear and, um, you know, good for people like us who are not technologists, but um, it's come up in some of our prior shows. We've talked about it with some prior guests. I think uh, privacy in Bitcoin is just only going to uh, continue to become a hot topic. So um, I guess Maybe just to start it, let's let's keep it sort of big picture here with coin join and join market. Uh, again, I'm ashamed to say I uh, doxing myself. You know, I, I've actually never done a coin join, and on a usage level, I'm fairly unfamiliar.
2: Terrible, terrible. I know it really is. it really is. <laughs> it <said>. really is. <laughs> I'm joking.
0: <laughs> but this is this is what uh, we're about here is to try to get better and learn. So. Uh, Maybe can you tell us some of the background about how you got into privacy and Bitcoin, uh, you know, just top level, and then mm-hmm. some of the differences with, with CoinJoin and, and what Join Market is doing.
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, I mean, getting into Bitcoin per se, uh, obviously, like most people, uh, it was a few years back, and just fascinated by the technology. Um, and delving into the technology, obviously, you, you notice certain things about it. One of them is, you know, scalability is kind of an issue. You know, you can't do millions of transactions every hour or whatever. Um, and the other thing you notice is, well, it's not very private. So it's kind of... It was one of a few sort of interesting areas of research that were around in, back in those days. Like I'm thinking, like, 2013. Uh, so CoinJoin um, is not really, like... Um, Something separate from Bitcoin or an add-on—it's—it's it's kind of intrinsic. Uh, but Greg Maxwell did a great job in 2013 of kind of outlining in detail for everyone the, the mechanics of it. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I got interested in it as a concept and also as like doing it as software. And, and Chris Belcher came up with the idea of Join Market in late 2014. Worth mentioning—you know—there were a couple of different uh, coin join implementations before that too. It's not like Join Market was the first. And uh, yeah, we, we we sort of delved in and, and did lots of coding, and, and people were quite enthusiastic about using it. But when I say people, of course, it's, it was it was always uh, so a bit of a technical. Um, it requires some technical skill. Uh, I mean, even just like knowing what CoinJoin is, is is kind of a bit a bit of a high bar for some people, uh, let alone actually using CoinJoin software. And of course, more recently, we've had uh, Wasabi Wallet, which has come out of uh, NoPara, and uh, that's sort of bumped bumped it up in terms of usability too. Um, Because I've said all this and I haven't actually said what CoinJoin is, but maybe just like the one sentence version. CoinJoin is is, uh, multiple people spending their own coins and usually paying those coins back to themselves, but doing it all in one transaction. And the advantage of that for privacy is that the output coins from the transaction may be depending on some details, they may be indistinguishable. So if you and I do a coin join, it may be the case that the coins that come out, uh, people can't tell where they came from or where they came from out of the set of inputs, so to speak. Does um, Does that give you a good summary of the idea?
0: Yeah, it does make sense indeed. And I think, uh, you know, obviously CoinJoin is just one of these uh, topics that uh, we, we've all heard about for a long time. And I really enjoyed uh, the breakdown you gave of that on uh, Bottom Shelf Bitcoin on that podcast. So I don't want to, you know, repeat all of that, obviously. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these things where, as always with Bitcoin and with anything, it comes down to trade-offs. You know, we're talking about uh, ease of use uh, versus Security versus versus privacy. We have a lot of uh, different improvement proposals uh, for Bitcoin on this front. You know, we have uh, from implementing Schnorr signatures to confidential transactions. Um, there's so many levels that we can look at this. It's obviously just a huge, a huge topic. But maybe, and, and we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. Maybe there's sort of even a higher level consideration to this because off-chain versus on-chain transacting is. Something that has been talked about, you know, forever, and it's been going on, you know, basically since the the first exchange started. Mm-hmm. That was just doing everything in a, yep. a MySQL database. Yep. But um, you know, th- it, this is not just Lightning here. When you talk about obfuscating transactions off chain, I mean, we have you know atomic swaps, colored coins, side chains, and Liquid. Um, you were talking about Chalmian tokens uh, with me before. I mean, we have lots of different. Uh, ways to uh, approach these trade offs when it comes to scaling, security, and then and then balancing that with privacy and ease of use. So it's just it's a huge topic. It's it's hard to sort of uh, know where to uh, begin, we might want to even just start looking at the difference between on chain and off chain transacting to to start. And again, this is not just lightning.
2: Sure. So I mean, if we approach this from the angle of let's say, we came at this wanting privacy. So, like uh, I was saying, like uh, oh, uh, I got interested in join market and and coin join as a as a way of improving uh, users' privacy. And you come into it and you think, okay, let's start doing coin joins. Great. And um, so you start improving privacy by doing more and more coin joins. But then you start to think, oh, hang on a minute, what happens if this is really successful? Like what happens if everyone is doing a coin join every day or something like that? You're suddenly talking about, you know, God knows how many megabytes of data going onto this, this weird blockchain thing that we're all using. And so you, you hit that kind of idea of, oh, improved privacy might actually come with worse scaling. And that, that leaves a bad taste in the mouth. You're thinking, oh, there's something wrong here, right? We're, we're, we're coming at this problem the wrong way. And it's not just, I mean, that's just one concrete example, coin join, right? And it's an important example. But there's others. Um, confidential transactions is an idea that's been out for, for well, since early 2015, I think, was the idea was first proposed by Greg Maxwell. And, um people have got very excited about it for good reason. And it's been implemented in Monero. It's been implemented in um, uh, Blockstream's Liquid product. It's been implemented and maybe other places, I guess, other altcoins. And that's a really cool idea. But it, it actually shares this same pattern somewhat because with confidential transactions, you're going to create outputs which are somehow obfuscated in terms of the amounts. So the, we could just crudely call it blinded amounts. But in order to blind the amounts, it's kind of interesting that... You actually have this same problem as CoinJoin, is that you're adding more data. So, a crude way to understand it is, if if the if my output is one bitcoin, then encoding that onto a blockchain, in other words, writing it out onto a onto a transaction in a blockchain, just requires writing the number one. I mean, that's not literally true. You've got to write hundred million because it's satoshis. But, um, but the problem is, if you blind all the outputs, then you have to think, well, it's it's that number is not just a one anymore, it's some massive weird random number with no pattern to it at all. So that's a crude way to understand why any kind of confidential transactions or any kind of amount blinding is going to add more data to the blockchain. You're going to have to add a lot of random noise, you see. And this pattern repeats in many other situations where... um, where you, you, in order to gain privacy, you kind of lose scalability. Um, and then there's other kinds of trade-offs, like, um, as you were mentioning, you know, we've got various trade-offs to worry about here. Like, there's also a, a kind of a trade-off between privacy and security as well. Like, okay, in the case of CoinJoin, we create these massive transactions, There's, but there's no real security trade-off, which is cool, because the great thing about a CoinJoin is it's atomic. Even if 10, like, complete worst enemies all get together and do a coin join. They can't steal from each other because the way a coin join works is everyone gets to look at the transaction before it goes through. And it either all goes through, so everyone gets their money, or none of it goes through, so no one gets their money. Or no one you know, uh, changes the position of their money, so to speak. So. With CoinJoin, it's all about the scalability trade-off. But with other tra- other um, technologies, it might be more about the security trade-off to get privacy. So, for example, I'm going to use confidential transactions again as the example here. But the security trade-off there might be um, might be the fact that although uh, we've got like a really high security of knowing that all these blinded amounts are not fake like coins we haven't got perfect knowledge that there's no faking going on there we could maybe talk about that again later if we want to but another example might be lightning like there you might trade off you might get a better privacy from lightning you do generally although it's a complicated question it's definitely better privacy you kind of trade off a little bit in security because you've kind of got to stay online a little bit even if it's you know watchtowers and so on and so forth. there's, there's this, once you put money into the Lightning Network, it's, it's in a sense in a, in a kind of spending state. So, you know, you've got to worry about reorgs, which you don't really have to worry about if your coins are at rest. You've got to worry about um, if if somebody broadcasts an old state, you've got to be around to, to reclaim and, and to, to sort of penal, penalise that, that. So you get these kind of security trade-offs and something even like to the extreme of something like Zcash, where you've got a very, a sophisticated cryptographic construct which tells you that, yep, all the coins are following the rules. The rules of the system are, you know, coins could go from here to here under these conditions. All those rules are being followed and nobody has any idea where the coins went, right? Because it's completely obfuscated by cryptography. But you've got to trust the cryptographic uh, uh, primitives underlying it and you've got to trust the implementation of those cryptographic primitives because even even like comparing the same level of cryptographic security between the uh, between a sort of blinded and unblinded uh, case, um, the problem is in the blinded case, you don't even know whether the rules were broken or not. You don't even know whether the code was written wrongly or not. You see, so... Um, sorry, I'm going on a bit long. There's, there's various trade-offs. I don't want to really get in mind the idea of the trade-off between security and privacy and scalability. There's kind of like an interlinking there, you know?
1: I mean, this this is all very fascinating, Adam, and it's very enlightening. Everything. My question then would be: today, what do you think is the practical the practical reality of privacy, with a pseudonymous but transparent ledger?
2: Yeah, um, I think it's important that we we ground ourselves in reality. So I I appreciate the question very much, and the reality today is that, with the exception of uh, uh, some sort of edge cases and some said lightning. Uh, Mostly we're using a transparent ledger in Bitcoin, but um, we should not forget and we should not lose sight of the built-in privacy sort of model, let's say, that Satoshi created uh, of pseudonyms. So as long as we don't reuse addresses, so every time we receive money, we receive it at a a new address, uh, then we have this quality of, like, every address is like its own little identity. And that identity just takes a coin and then spends a coin and that's it. And people have a tendency, I think, in in the modern Bitcoin world, shall we say, to overestimate how easy it is to, to trace coins with certainty. Um, So blockchain analysis companies can do a lot. Uh, A lot of what they do is metadata. A lot of what they do is KYC, AML data from exchanges. They do do some blockchain analysis using at least the basic primitive heuristics, we should call them. Um, I don't want to go into the details, but they can sort of trace somewhat coins going along from one place to the other. But do not underestimate the pseudonymous uh, model, because if all of us didn't use exchanges, if none of us used KYC AML, and if we simply traded between each other, then it would be extremely difficult to know where a coin came from and so on and so forth. of course, that's not the practical reality. There are such things as merchants. Yeah? So people have to a- advertise themselves as being willing to accept money in exchange for goods. <laughs> and that opens up the fact that because it's a transparent ledger, people can exploit that to sort of identify flows. And so the, pr- the practical reality is it's far from perfect. And because it's a transparent ledger, it will never be perfect, no matter how clever you are with coin joins. But at the same time, you know, nuance, the practical reality is also that it is far from perfectly traceable. So please don't get the idea that every single you know, coin could be traced back to its exact origin, which is what a lot of people think, and it's just not really like that.
1: Yeah, true. I think this is this is the the usual acceptance or perception of people nowadays with the traceability of, of Bitcoin. But uh, so, in your opinion, today, what solutions are most optimal to verify code and audits? Wow, that is
2: that is one heck of a question. <laughs> um, you
1: can take as long as you want.
2: <laughs> yeah, that is one heck of a question um, because um, the you know what are the trade offs here like. The easiest things to code are things that are um, really simple. To, um, to, to co- there's a good reason. Coin join, for example. Let me give you a, a compare and contrast. Like we had two ideas: coin join and coin swap. That Greg Maxwell pr- proposed both of them. I think around the same time. And when he used that term, coin swap, he was thinking of what is often called an atomic swap. Uh, people usually think of atomic swaps as like swaps of coins between blockchains, but it can be on the same blockchain, and moreover, it can be done on the on Bitcoin blockchain in a way that preserves privacy. So if we compared CoinJoin and CoinSwap as two technologies or two um, what's the word algorithms? That's not the word <laughs> protocols. Uh, two protocols to improve privacy. One of them has been implemented pretty extensively, and the other one has not been implemented at all. And the reason for that, I think, is because. A coin join has this very simple atomicity, like I think I mentioned it earlier, where either everyone gets the thing done or nobody gets anything done and nothing happens at all. And there's no real issues uh, worrying about the blockchain per se. And I think it's kind of a subtle but important point that whenever you do things where there are kind of atomic swaps, and by the way, you know, uh, Lightning's sort of network element is very crucially based on what's called an HTLC, which is kind of like an atomic swap. Um, whenever you have that element, you've got to worry about um, what, like, what's happening between blocks. Because like, whenever you have two transactions as part of a contract, two or more, the problem is that one of them may confirm and the other one may not. And that's, that's very crudely the, the basis of the, of the, of the issue. So there are, there, are, there, are practic- um, there are practical limitations in terms of building out very complex uh, contract constructions in, in the real world. So that's in terms of coding. In terms of verifying and auditing, well, um, if I could pick up audit, the the thing with auditing is, I think, very important, and I think people are really starting to clue into this now, is that the more complex the uh, cryptographic uh, constructions and and particularly the cryptographic assumptions, so so to give you an example of that, I mean um, a cryptographic assumption in Bitcoin would be that Given a public key, you cannot uh, derive the private key. And that's that's a very simple. Uh, it's called the elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem. That's a very simple example of a cryptographic assumption that we use. Uh, but but the more we use these cryptographic assumptions to kind of ensure uh, properties of systems, uh, the the problem is because by its nature cryptography kind of blinds things. It makes it um, there's a randomization, which means that the output doesn't show the input directly. Um, I'm trying to think of the right way to explain this. Like, uh, if you have blinded output amounts, let's let's give it a concrete example. Let's say we've got a we've got a cryptocurrency. It could be Monero, Bitcoin, Zcash, whatever. And the amounts of the outputs are blinded. Um, if your cryptographic assumptions hold correctly. Then the um, the amounts will not be. You won't be able to create a million coins out of nothing. You know that's part of the, the we call that kind of binding property. We're we we're, we're not allowing the amount to just vary or change. Um, if you uh, if however there is a problem, and this problem could be this is the subtlety I think people perhaps miss. The problem could be in that the cryptographic assumption is not as strong as you think it is. Like maybe there's some clever algorithm to break it. Or the problem could be that when you wrote the code, you missed some important, very slight detail that screwed up that cryptographic assumption and no longer holds. Or it could be some kind of mixture of the cryptography and the mathematics and the code. But whatever the vector is that makes the thing go wrong, the fundamental problem is that because the amounts are blinded, you don't know that it went wrong. And, and that's why when we talk about auditing, it's not enough to just say, oh, yeah, I read the code and the, the greatest expert in the world read the code and it's definitely correctly implementing the algorithm. It, it, it's, it, that's just not the level of security or, 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 or surety I think we need for something like the output amounts in a blockchain. You know, and we saw concrete examples of this, like like Monero had a bug and I think it was fixed in early 2017, but it was on the live mainnet for some considerable time that would have allowed people to print money. And it was simply a mistake uh, based on some small detail of the cryptographic construction of the system, okay? They used uh, Dan Bernstein's code and it had what's called a, a small subgroup, which meant that you could create a public key that was like a kind of naughty public key, basically, that allowed you to do this and that allowed you to actually print money. Now, they were lucky in one sense because that specific bug did not have the property that it was hidden, that it had been exploited. So actually you would have been able to see if anyone had exploited it and it wasn't exploited. So that's lucky. But you know, Zcash more recently had a similar problem where but it was even more complex, right? I mean, the, the, the actual zero-knowledge uh, proof technology there is, is something I don't understand yet, although I intend to learn more about it. But it did have this property where somebody could print coins and nobody would know about it. And that is absolutely catastrophic. So auditing, I think, has this very special property in this, in this blockchain space that it doesn't have in other software. And, you know, in terms of verification, I mean, well, uh, the nice thing about verification is in all these systems, the idea is that verification should be cheap. And um, If we can take stuff off-chain, sort of going to the other side of the spectrum here of the ideas, if we can take stuff off-chain and we can verify things... Um, at the client side, so to speak. So, so the participants. The crude example: Lightning, okay. Lightning. The participants are the ones doing all the complex cryptographic instructions, complex uh, computations, and verifications. They're not happening on the blockchain until you finally, you know, close the channel or something. So, so yeah. Um, in terms of what's most optimal, I mean, you can see this is a very uh, complex field, and it's growing and it's changing very rapidly. Um, but I think generally, my simple answer to your question is that the best solutions are the things that are going to take the semantics of the transactions. In other words, the meaning of the transactions um, off chain in some way or other. So the burden is placed on the participants in the protocol and not on every person owning the blockchain.
0: Hey, everybody, just want to take a moment to tell you about our product sponsor for this episode, Crypto Tradesmith. If volatility and FOMO is just too much for you, Crypto Tradesmith will help. By signing up for Crypto Tradesmith, you'll get risk management tools and over 50,000 trading pairs to help you manage your portfolio. Price your portfolio in dollars, price it in Bitcoin, price it in Litecoin, as you wish. You'll get custom email and text alerts when a volatile point or trailing stop is triggered. You'll also get access to Dr. Richard Smith's proprietary green yellow red light indicators and a ton of other great tools such as portfolio risk analyzer and rebalancer this is risk management software this is not day trading software it's amazing we endorse it and by the way if you use it you can manage big-picture Bitcoin portfolio strategies like stop loss and buy orders completely off-book your exchange will never know what your strategy is so it tandems very well with managing your own keys which you should do so sign up right away on our special Offer page slash trade smith offer. slash trade smith offer. You'd be helping the show out, cannot endorse the product highly enough. And also check out episode 55, where we interview the founder of Trade Stops and Crypto Trade Smith, Dr. Richard Smith.
1: Let me take a break on the on the technical aspects. I mean, this is a fascinating discussion, but I want to take a step back and and, and have a, a, a I think it's a two part question. First, uh, I would ask uh, uh, if you could make the case for privacy, because we're just here taking for granted that more privacy on chain or off chain is desired. So then why do we need more privacy? This is the, the first part. And then the second one is Especially for on-chain more privacy for privacy enhancements, we need consensus. And depending on the on the change, perhaps Schnorr signatures, we need a a more than rough consensus, almost unanimous. How can we reconcile the case for privacy and the the improvements in privacy on-chain and the consensus around it?
2: Yeah, actually, very both very good questions. Yeah. So the first one, the case for privacy. I think it's, a, 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 a to me, it mostly, you, you can make ethical arguments for sure, and they're, they're very good, but I think it mostly comes from security uh, arguments, like, um, I mean, the crude example might be this, that you go to a coffee shop, you want to buy um, a coffee, and if you naively used Bitcoin main chain today, and let's say you happen to be a very rich person, you, you might be spending like a hundred or a three hundred BTC UTXO to, to, to buy, buy that coffee, and the you know the barista suddenly knows that you've got you know millions of dollars or whatever. Uh, so that's a crude example of what I mean by security. Uh, but you, you can generalize it to like very, very kind of high-level abstract, like just trust. You know, Satoshi famously used that phrase in the white paper, all the trust required to make it work. And, you kind of get entangled in trust relationships. You know, if you have to, um, if, if if you have to expose information about yourself uh, in your financial transactions, um, you, for security reasons, you don't want everyone to know that. And security could be just like, it doesn't have to be like the threat of violence. It could be, you know, your business A and your competitor is business B and you don't want Business B to know your, um, you know your your sourcing and your, your the costs of your inputs and what have you, so that's kind of security as well, and all of that means that um, we end up with these trust relationships. We end up with kind of hub and spoke where. Um, Everyone either uses Coinbase or, in the fiat system, everyone uses a bank because you can't really store 200 grand under your bed in in cash because it's not secure, and you don't, you know, you don't want to walk around the street with 100 grand in cash. You know, you want to walk around the street with a with a device. So I think that the the case is pretty easy to make for privacy. It's pretty obvious that it's desirable. What's not so obvious is what you're prepared to trade off in order to get it, and I think that's what's sometimes missed. For example. Ian Myers uh, recently gave gave an excellent talk on on Zcash, and I guess on ZK-SNARKs, you could argue. You know, I suppose it was Zcash Protocol. Um, I forget the name of it, but uh, he gave this talk. It's on YouTube somewhere. And uh, he made this excellent case as to why the the approaches to privacy on a blockchain that don't involve a full zero-knowledge computation approach like ZK-SNARKs um, those are other approaches like ring signatures or, or, or the other tech that we've already talked about. He said they're all, you know, they just don't work because you have, you know, cluster intersection attacks. You, you can sort of have active attacks on it. And I, I you know, I recommend watching the talk because he makes a very good case. But I think the problem with his case is that he's he absolutely at no point mentions the actual trade-offs that you are or are not prepared to make in order to gain perfect privacy. Uh, My immediate response to his talk was, yeah, perfect privacy is ideal. That's why DigiCash was absolutely perfect. Unfortunately, DigiCash was not absolutely perfect. It was a complete disaster. (laughs) And the reason it was a complete disaster was because it was centralized, Um, you know, because they made a trade-off. They had this perfect information theoretic security of, you know, I, I spend a coin, I receive a coin, and we know there's no connection between them. Yeah, perfect, but it's totally centralized, so it doesn't actually work. So unfortunately, like all these topics, you know, there's nuance. And if you just want just take one side of it, yeah, you can make your case, but you've got to consider the other side too. Um, and now I've forgotten the second half of your question, sorry.
1: <laughs> it was regarding the consensus around changes ah, to yeah. improve privacy on-chain.
2: Yeah, that's. this is a very big topic. Um, yeah. When it comes to Schnorr and when it comes to CT, confidential transactions, I see those as very different. Um, First of all, Schnorr is like intrinsically a soft fork because it's a new feature. Whereas CT, I mean, I think I've heard people argue about whether it's a soft fork or it has to be a hard fork or not, but that's not really the point today. I mean, Schnorr is, because it's it's just another signature type, you could argue about it, but it's not like anyone has to use it, right? So I think in terms of consensus, and I also want to make the point, since I'm being given the platform to do so, and I, I like to make this point wherever I can. Um, the thing about Schnorr is some people say, I've, I've heard people say it's unproven technology, and I just think that's totally confused. Um, Schnorr itself, the base signature algorithm, as you know, invented by Klaus Schnorr around 1990-ish or so, um, is, fundamentally more secure than than DSA or ECDSA. And I say fundamentally more secure because uh, if you can crack Schnorr, you can crack the elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem. And if you can crack the elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem, of course you can crack any signature scheme using elliptic curve discrete logs. So in other words, that's the technical sentence. The the non-technical sentence is, Schnorr is guaranteed to be at least as secure as ECDSA. So it doesn't make sense. However, the slight caveat, of course, is that the way that it's being proposed to be implemented use, is using something called MuSig, which is a more complicated construction that is purely a Schnorr signature. But at the end of the day, it's all about, all of this stuff, it's about like, this is an optional way people can do transactions. So I really don't think there's a huge consensus issue around Schnorr, although, you know, people can make up all kinds of politics. But when it comes to CT, you see it's very different, right? Because the reason it's very different is because if you blind the amounts, as, as, as I explained earlier, you've got to use some cryptographic assumptions in order to blind the amounts, no matter how strong those are, and they are pretty damn strong. I mean, I'm reasonably confident in both in the tech and and, and in the people who, who implement it. Um, but, you know, there's, there is a change there in, in the security uh, assumption of the whole system, which there isn't with... Um, with Schnorr, now uh, you know people have, have have come up with ideas about how to get around that and i'm i'm very open to ideas and i'd, I'd love to see some form of ctb how to put it i'd love to see ct let's say blinded amounts you know be available to bitcoin users exactly how it's going to be available is debatable you could argue it's already available because they can already move coins into liquid the sidechain that blockstream runs but, you know, that's a kind of a federated model. It's a different thing. And then there's issues of pegging in and pegging out and so on and so forth. But I'd love, to, I'd love it to be a thing in the future. But consensus-wise, something like that would be tricky because it impacts every user.
0: Let me stop you there, Adam, because I think this is uh, in line with uh, the next question I wanted to ask, which is also, I think, a two-part question. And uh, it, it goes back to the on-chain versus off-chain because I think this is still a, an interesting topic that might not be as talked about as much when it comes to privacy and I, I guess the first one is um as you mentioned like we may be able to do something like ct uh, or you can classify it that way if it's done on liquid or in a side chain uh I, I mean how much merit do you think should be put on uh going back to what we we're talking about earlier should be put on off-chain transacting for privacy i mean should that be sort of the main focus for adding privacy and i understand it's not all or one i mean like you said you know Schnorr is easier done as a soft fork than CT could be done as a soft or hard fork on on the main chain. But, you know, if we look at off-chain transacting, there's probably just intuitively, there's many more ways to work on privacy off-chain than on. So I think that's interesting. So really how much marriage we put off-chain, that's the first question. And then the second question, which is uh, sort of the inverse of that or a paradox of that, I think, is like if we start to get you know, as you mentioned earlier, we just can't do everything on-chain with with space in the blocks. But if we start to get nearly all of the economic activity, you know, on the second layer, uh, you know, all the payments, so on and so forth, and we only settle for some final, you know, base uh, large payments, for example, is there something there that lacks with this model of having privacy off-chain in, in the main security of Bitcoin if we just have, you know, a few main settlement payments going back to Bitcoin. So I hope that was clear, There's the two parts of that question.
2: Yeah, it's clear. There's two parts, yeah. Uh, And the first part is should we focus on it. I mean, mean, we're getting to that part of the talk where I'm I'm sort of like, uh, I'm not really that sure of my own opinion. I I have a lot of thoughts about it, but um, I mean, I would envision... I've, I think I've always envisioned, even before we had lightning, I've always envisioned that we would, uh, we by let's say the Bitcoin user community, uh, as it grew, would inevitably involve uh, a majority of off-chain. Initially that tended to imply trusted solutions like, you know, the the Coinbase as a bank sort of thing, Uh, but in there I mean Coinbase with a capital C of course. Well. So, so I mean, that was just like mathematics, right? I mean, you, you've got a, a, a flood fill network, or, you know, a, a, broad, a, a broadcast all to all. Everyone everyone gets every piece of data. And it just never made any sense to me to think that, that there was any kind of scaling in that. So I, I remember maybe it was 2013, 14, when, when people, I, I was arguing with people and I was saying to them, look, this is not a consumer technology. This is this is I, I used to say this is Swift, not Starbucks points, but I mean that's not nobody really liked my little meme there because <laughs> I don't think anyone really knows what Swift is, but <laughs> I think this is much closer to Swift, which is like the international bank to bank payments network, than it is to a consumer payments network like Visa, for example, right? So it just seemed obvious from the from the construction, from the design, and, and I don't think that's because Toshi wanted to build Swift. <laughs> I think he wanted to build something like Visa, if anything. If you read what he the way he described the system, but he can't have been under any illusion that that it doesn't scale beyond a certain point, right? Um, and it, you know, it's not just a question of like increasing a, the size of a block because it's 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 a kind of a quadratic versus linear problem, right? It's it's, it's a non-linearity that the bigger we get, the more kind of inter, interconnections we have, um, whether that be at the actual peer-to-peer network layer or whether it be, you know, in terms of payments and, and, and functionally. Um, so, so the way I would look at it is that off-chain is not really a question. The question is, how do we off-chain, right? Uh, and, um, Lightning came along whenever it came along, 2014, 15, I forget. Um, and it, it kind of blew everyone away a bit because they'd really, like, they thought a little bit more deeply and they, they'd seen that you could really go a little a, a few steps further. So Lightning was fantastic, but by that I don't imply that I think either that Lightning will, will just take over the world very quickly. I don't think it, it, that's possible. I think it's going to be very slow um, because you know it's and also although it's fantastic it's, it's it does have limitations right I mean there there is this kind of onlineness element there's a slight you know that slight game theoretic element in in the in the current penalty implementation um, and its privacy is great and it's been really built very well with privacy in mind but it's it's not perfect and and it, you know because of it's a slightly different security model so you're not going to use it for huge payments probably. So lightning's fantastic, uh, but we, we have other other things we can use. I mean, sidechain is one of those open questions. It has been ever since the idea was first <clears throat> put forward. It doesn't. We don't have this kind of pure, uh, completely trustless sidechain model that we would really like. Um, uh, so so yeah. In short, off chain is is great. Now the, the the second part of your question, um, I don't really have an answer. I think. I've been thinking about it a bit. Like, let's let's think of some some, some crude examples. Like, for example, some people want to put, uh, I know, <laughs> uh, it's a bit silly, they got gold on the blockchain, right? You know, they have like uh, coloured coins, and each each satoshi represents an ounce of gold. You know, imagine that scenario, right? So imagine everyone suddenly went mad for gold on, on the blockchain, on the Bitcoin blockchain. Had everyone was trans transacting. Um, an ounce of gold, encoded in like a single Satoshi output, right? Um, Well, obviously there's two things to observe about that. The first thing is, there is no such thing as a trustless connection between a real world asset and and, and a Bitcoin or a digital asset, right? It doesn't exist. So that's probably why that will never happen. But if we imagine that it did happen, um, the, the question would be around security, right? So in that case, If people were doing lots of such transactions, I mean, it's a pretty weird idea, but if they were, then they'd have to be paying transaction fees and and competing for block space anyway, right? So I'm not really sure. Um, Whereas that, of course, is on chain, right? So then if we move over to Lightning, this is obviously a point that's often raised by critics, is that they'll say, well, if you move all the economic activity onto Lightning, then the number of on-chain transactions is gonna be lower and the amount of transaction fees is gonna be lower and the security of the system is gonna be reduced economically in terms of the mining reward. And I kind of initially more or less dismissed this. I thought, well, practically speaking, um, what you're doing with creating that kind of system is you're you're adding more uh, capacity, uh, at this kind of slightly different security model, but you've still got the same capacity at the, at the more solid security model of the base chain. So probably realistically, what with the all the uh, open and closed transactions and all the other large transactions, it, I don't think it will really be an issue. But I still think it's an interesting open question whether, because it, I suppose it's somewhat tied to the other uh, question that's been raised by, by some academics, which is, oh... Um, actually, if you look at like the stability of the system without, without a block reward, you know, and only using transaction fees, arguably Bitcoin isn't totally secure. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't know is a simple answer, but I, I, I think it's probably going to be okay, but I can't give you any solid statements about it.
1: Let me ask you this now, Uh, regarding uh, perfect inflation resistance, can we we guarantee perfect inflation resistance if we have perfect privacy? Is that possible on-chain?
2: Depends how you look at it, I suppose. Uh, if, If you need perfect privacy, um, then we're going to have to have something that's effectively zero knowledge. And, and, and people sometimes make the mistake of thinking zero knowledge is specific to something like ZK-SNARKs, but there are actually several different technologies. And even, even a basic digital signature, if done correctly, is a zero-knowledge proof of knowledge of the private key. So so extending, extend in your mind the concept of zero-knowledge to basically... Um, technologies that enable you to sort of not reveal any information apart from the specific bit that something is true or false um, or the specific information that you want to reveal so so perfect privacy uh, if we imagine that uh, if we if we restrict ourselves to the, the concept of a blinded amount so if we have perfectly private amounts we can have perfectly private um, binding commitments to those amounts which would imply perfect inflation resistance although perfect uh, let me i want to say two different things but i'm not sure which order so we, if we if we try to make the inflation resistance perfect it has an implication for scalability and it's kind of technical to explain this, but it, it can be explained. I, I wrote this. Uh, I explained this um, in, a, in an early section of my of my um, write up on bulletproofs. It was um, it was called from zero knowledge to bulletproof. If you look that up online uh, under my name, I think you'll find it. Anyway, so the point is that that there's this kind of not mathematical or cryptographic, but even just absolute logical um, limitation that it's absolutely impossible to have a commitment that is both perfectly um, uh, binding and perfectly private. So the trade-off here is between um, perfect, what we call perfect binding and perfect hiding. And perfect binding means um, you know, like logically for certain, no matter what computer someone's using, perfect binding means you would not be able to print new coins in a hidden way, right? And perfect privacy means that's easier to understand. It just means nobody can tell what your, the amount of your coin is, no matter how powerful their computer is. The opposite of each of those is computational instead of perfect. So you could have computational binding, which means that uh, nobody can print new coins unless they have like a quantum computer or some credible like algorithm that nobody's thought of. Or, um, uh, computational privacy, the same for privacy. So, like, if they have a quantum computer, that they can they can actually um, unblind and see the real amount. So it's pretty clear that for most people, it's more important to have. Um, perfect uh, binding because we don't ever want, because this is a global system and we don't, if, if all the amounts are hidden, we don't want there to suddenly be millions of new coins that nobody can see. So it's it's clear that for most people anyway, not everyone, that perfect binding or perfect inflation resistance is the more important of the two. But it's important to understand that there's a kind of logical theorem. It's not even like dependent on any assumptions. You, you, you can't have both at the same time. You can't have perfect both. You can have perfect one and computational the other. And to most cryptographers in most like scenarios in the past, this has been like, well, it's true, but it's it's okay. Like they, they treat it as okay because computational is kind of almost like sci-fi, like somebody could break it. With some billions upon well, in billions, uh, two to the 256 operations or something like that, you know, because nobody has such a computer, we just uh, treat it as okay. But in in Bitcoin, we're particularly paranoid about this. Uh, if it's hidden, particularly, you know, hidden inflation resistance is, is kind of a disaster. And we we kind of saw that weakness appear in Zcash. Although you know, so far the argument is it hasn't been exploited. But how can we know, right? I mean, it's not necessarily easy to
0: know. Yeah, very good. Uh, I, I want to now pivot to maybe some fairly specific questions uh, from the perspective of a Bitcoiner. So the first one would be, uh, you know, say you're a Bitcoiner, uh, you, you appreciate privacy, you appreciate inflation resistance, perhaps even more, like you said, perfect binding, obviously, most people would uh, prefer that what maybe should your view be on altcoins uh, in general and privacy coins in particular? Do you think that they add any value to the Bitcoin ecosystem?
2: I don't really have a clear answers to this but um, I can talk in general terms especially about like the, the, the history of people trying to make privacy coins. I mean I, I've said in the past my sort of negative take is something like this that um, I don't see much value in creating an infinite sequence of increasingly insecure altcoins in order to solve all of bitcoin's problems which you know a lot of the altcoins especially in the early days were kind of like that they were like oh look at bitcoin it has this weakness let's fix that and let's make another coin and it seems to me like that's that's like the beginning of an infant regress because then your right. your coin will have its own weaknesses and somebody and that's exactly what we've seen right i mean you know uh bitcoin and monero and then there was bitcoin dark and i don't even remember the names of all these things that there's there's hundreds of Forks are forks are forks. Um, so that's that's a kind of very high-level reason why I don't particularly like the altcoin approach. Um, now, of course, it is true that in a few cases, and Monero is maybe the most obvious example, uh, there's been really interesting research done around one or two of these coins, and they developed interesting ideas. Uh, Zcash, of course, is similar. I mean, I've, I've said a couple of negative things about Zcash in, in, this, in this, but I... But it should be patently obvious that the, the, the development of such a protocol is an incredible achievement, really. I mean, even if it's you know whether it's perfectly secure or not, I don't know. I'm, it's not like I'm the expert. But it, it's an incredible idea. You know, you you have a you have a, um, uh, a block to have a blockchain where basically there is no transaction graph whatsoever. Uh, is 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 really incredible. So so yeah, um, the question is, you know. I think the other thing about, this is maybe an unusual perspective, I'm not sure about that. Um, another reason I think altcoins are less interesting than some other people find them is because I'm a bit of a proof of work maximalist. <laughs> uh, because I actually, for a long time, well, I've always just thought that proof of stake was a fundamentally just wrong concept, It just I mean, to me, it's, it's quite arrogant to say this, but to me, if you think proof of stake is a good idea, it means you never understood proof of work in the first place. <laughs> no. And um, because I think that, um, that has implications if you think about it, because there's a finite amount of energy in the world. Whereas there's not a finite, not realistically, a finite amount of like uh, computers. I mean, it's not the same order of magnitude, right? Everyone can run 50 different proof of stake blockchains, a million different proof of stake blockchains. There's no limit. But you know, energy is something where we all have to compete for it. Right. Um, so to me, um because I'm I only think proof of work actually makes sense, it's it's almost like, well, yeah, we can make other coins, but what we're the real goal here is to create a kind of um something that's ideally impervious to state-level attack. Uh, because if you don't go the whole hog. It's almost like you're kind of playing a bit of a game. You know, you, you, you're always ultimately subject to the, to the rule of, of man, so to speak, rather than <laughs> the rule of, uh, the rule of uh, mathematics. Um, whereas if proof of work works, then it, it should work at scale and it should really be one blockchain, in my opinion.
0: It's interesting to me that you uh, defaulted back, you know, in a discussion about privacy and uh, privacy coins, you've defaulted back to proof of work as being sort of the most important thing and and mm. by by definition i think you know inflation resistant uh state resistant you know sound money sort of issue at least that's how i'm yeah reading
2: yeah there's definitely a crossover isn't there although it's not <laughs> I, perhaps i did slightly drift off the point but 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 yeah it is somewhat related isn't it yeah
0: yeah but i mean with something like uh, monero i mean that's proof of work correct
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's kind of my point is that is that I don't think we need we w- really want to be creating a very large sequence yeah. of, as I say, uh, increasingly insecure, uh, smaller blockchains. But it's not like I don't see the 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 um, the motivation. Of course, I see the motivation. I mean, if you read Monero's uh, white paper or CryptoNote, whatever it was called, you know, it was basically a long list of all the ways Bitcoin's rubbish, and <laughs> here's how we're going to fix it all, um, which is which is fine, but. Um, I think that, you now, if, if we were to be a bit more sort of objective and say, oh, let's forget about what came first and let's forget about um, you know the size of the systems, whatever, just look at the actual design of the systems, then I would say that Monero is very interesting, but um, we have this kind of scalability trade-off that I think is very, very fundamental and, and, and often advocates of these uh, other coins don't really pay attention to. Is that you don't have any sense of unspent? Uh, sorry, you don't have any sense of spentness in in those kind of blinded blockchains, or, or, or in Monero's case, it's just that the um, they use ring signatures, so they they source a coin from multiple potential original coins, which means that none of decoys. the original yeah exactly decoys, which means that none of the original coins are ever officially spent, so to speak. Um, so that has a tremendous uh, implication, I think, in the long term for l- large, larger scalability issues, and, and you also see it in other aspects of their design, like they they, cho- they implemented CT basically immediately, even in the original Borromean ring signature design, which was much uh, less space efficient than Bulletproofs, which they've now implemented, anyway, and the, the ring signatures themselves are quite large, so you, you just, what they're just doing is throwing tons of, tons of data onto the, their blockchain, um, and, you know, if it were to have as much usage as Bitcoin, it would be absolutely enormous, right? And I'm not even sure how, okay, I don't know the technical details, whether, whether that would be an issue for verification or for storage or for transfer, I don't know. But uh, fundamentally, if you don't, it's, it's kind of interesting to observe that more deep point that if you don't have spentness, you have this kind of fundamental unscalability. I think that's interesting.
0: Okay, and then I think uh, my next question, uh, trying to be more specific for, you know, a Bitcoiner, an average Bitcoiner. Again, it's a question of trade-offs. You're an average Bitcoiner, uh, you want to increase your privacy. You mentioned Wasabi Wallet earlier, you know, that doesn't require a full node. Um, Maybe you need to start running a full node if you're not doing, uh, doing so already. Of course, this is not financial advice. It's very hard to give general uh, specific advice when it comes to privacy. But maybe what steps would you take then uh, for, let's say, a portion of your spendable funds? Um, you know, would you start using Monero for some things and and uh, and, and trade it back and forth? Would you run a full node doing CoinJoin? Would that be sort of your base uh, recommendation? Or what would be some of your recommendations uh, in general now from a Bitcoiner's perspective?
2: Yeah, but they, they often say, um, actually, let me start this by by shouting out uh, Chris Belcher's recent uh Privacy article on the Bitcoin Wiki because it kind of addresses this question in enormous detail um, and from different angles as well. So I would I would strongly recommend if people are interested in improving their uh, Bitcoin privacy that they give that article a read. And, and you know it might it might take you some time, it might, it might take a few sessions to read it Indeed. all. But I really and, and don't forget to get to the end. I think a lot of people miss the end because the great thing he did at the end is he wrote out several real world examples and I think they're tremendously enlightening. Anyway, that's that's a sort of high-level uh, recommendation. Uh, in terms of what you should do, I mean, basically, um, you have to think about your threat model. You know, are you in Iran or in some uh, maybe some I don't know dictatorship where you're going to get imprisoned for using Bitcoin? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> uh, that's a different case, right? To 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 let's let's just talk about maybe somebody in the kind of like America or something, and they're just kind of. A, sure casual user or let's say they've got some Bitcoin and also they do spend it from time to time because it's a bit different if you never really spend it from if you do, right? So if you do spend it from time to time, I would recommend um, using CoinJoin um, uh, if you don't have a full node, as is pointed out, Wasabi. I'm, I'm Hey, I'm I'm not partisan. I mean, if people want to use Wasabi instead of Join Market, then I'm I'm fine with that. I mean, I would much rather people use CoinJoin in some way or other, because the the great thing about doing stuff like CoinJoin is it's certainly not a panacea, but the benefit benefit of it spreads, in my opinion, to the whole ecosystem, because it really damages chain analysis a lot, or blockchain analysis generally, I should say. Uh, so, so use CoinJoin both for yourself and, and just to improve the system generally. On um, no account reuse addresses, uh, so you know, address that if, if your wallet um, is in some way doing that, please use a different wallet. Um, use a full node, it's especially useful, it's, it's useful generally, uh, for example, for, for the integrity of the system, making sure you're receiving genuine coins but it's also very useful for things like uh, broadcast use, use Tor. There's, there's, I don't think it's particularly difficult nowadays to set up your node to actually uh, connect over Tor. So that helps a lot with um, broadcasting transaction, the origin of it. Uh, what else? Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of mobile wallets, I, d- I don't get too uh, worked up about it. You can, You can use certain wallets. Uh, Samurai has a lot of interesting privacy features, although I personally don't use it, but but I I do have it installed. Um, But that's a very interesting option. Um, I like the green bits slash green address wallet uh, from uh, Lawrence Nahum and and those guys because I can connect it uh, to my full node. Um, So that's a kind of nice feature, but, but be careful about obviously using mobile wallets because they're a bit less secure. Um, this is just a scatter a scattergun approach. Sorry, I'm just saying a few random things. I, I don't really have a yeah. Like a,
0: do you have any thoughts about Belcher's uh, Electrum personal server? Because I oh yeah I yeah that's a,
2: I've actually yeah I use I've used that. Um, it's um, it, I don't know if like a complete noob can can use that kind of solution. Probably they can, but it's well even if it is a little bit difficult, you you just have to do one thing and then it's set up. So the great thing about it is that you can. Um, get the Electrum interface, which is quite, is very full featured, including stuff like hardware wallet support, um, connected to your full node, but you don't have to have some kind of massive um, uh, indexing, which is a bit of a pain. Uh, So that's the really nice thing about Electrum personal server. Yeah,
0: all all good thoughts there, Adam. Um, It's obviously we can uh, just keep going down the rabbit hole here when it comes to privacy. I wanted to ask maybe one more uh, slightly off topic uh, to close it. You know, we had this very interesting bug that the Swiss uh, ballot system, uh, you know, their cryptographers were trying to implement this electronic ballot system, uh, private mixing, anonymizing all of these uh, votes. And it turned out that the Zcash team, I believe, proved that there was a bug that basically could allow an attacker to mess with this anonymizing mm-hmm. of the votes and essentially mm-hmm. mess, you yeah. know, mess up the entire yeah, voting. I know result. the story. Yeah. So what do you think about that, both from just a specific sort of interesting security find to, you know, extrapolating to like how how useful is some of this technology going to even be when it comes to something like voting?
2: Yes, it's a very interesting case study. I mean, I, I, I should caveat, I, I, I've only just like read some sequences of tweets about it. That's not the same thing as actually like, oh, I did scan one paper about it. But um, fundamentally, it's kind of interesting that the, the actual technical problem, if I understood correctly, is, is, is somewhat connected with something we said earlier. We were talking about the uh, perfect inflation resistance and perfect privacy trade-off. With something like confidential transactions, and very closely connected, um, because what they use is something called a Pedersen commitment, and a Pedersen commitment is basically how can I explain it simply? We all know the idea of a pub key, a public key for your, you know, your Bitcoin address, whatever your your Bitcoin. Yep. Well, imagine you had two different public keys, um, put and you, and you sort of add them together. You put them together. And one of those public keys contains the actual thing that you're like committing to. And the other public key is like a randomness, which which hides and blinds the thing that you're committing to. And this is a really cool construction and it's used like everywhere in modern cryptography, at least the things I study anyway, not everything perhaps. But um, yeah, we use it in confidential transactions, which is why I mentioned that. But it was also used in this this voting uh, system and as I understand it, they, they made a really elementary error where they didn't do what's called uh, nums. So this is a, 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 a nums means nothing up my sleeve. <laughs> and w- w- what it is, is in cryptography, you want to create some object which you can prove you don't know the, let's say, secret key for it. <clears throat> and the way you do that is you do something like, you know, you just hash some Sentence like you know, hash crypto voices, uh, and that produces some random string. And it's absolutely impossible that the the public key corresponding to that random string you, that you could know the private key. And it's absolutely crucial to the security of. I mean, it's, it's like it's like it's like 101. It's like what a Pedersen commitment even is. Uh, it's absolutely crucial that you have this nums property. And the fact that they actually created the Pedersen commitments where. Instead of doing that, they just made up a random number and turned that into a public key. It's like they created the private key and turned it into a public key. And the, and the, and the absolute basis of security of the system was that that private key is not known to anyone, but they just generated it in code. I mean, think about how stupid that is. That is incredibly stupid because it means the whole, all of the cryptographic, like security assumptions are all totally broken. Uh, And that is, uh, you know, again, I must caveat I I didn't study this case in detail, I only just know it offhand, but that is appalling. But I, I think I saw something like that maybe one other time in somebody's like prototype code, but just, it's just, professionals just would not do that. And that is just insane. Um, so what does it illustrate? It illustrates that if you combine very sophisticated, modern, like abstract technology, like cryptography with bureaucracies and systems and what have you, and, you know, third party contractors and all, you know, you know how it is in the real world, right? With the governments and contractors and all this stuff. So much money gets wasted, so much incompetence, so much just rubbish, right? And uh, imagine mixing that up with like, really crucial cryptography which defends people's like personal rights it's just a nightmare
0: (laughs) interesting yeah i I think it says uh, a lot about at least any expectations of the state adopting any improvements in you know Voter personal privacy and security—it's it's it's pretty far-reaching.
2: Well, yeah, but it, but but depending on that, what you mean by that, it's almost like we don't want them to, right? Because sure. they're going to screw sure. it up so badly. <laughs> and if this is an example, because yeah. I think it was in Australia as well, not just Switzerland. If I if I read it right, the, it was like the same tech or the same company that was being used.
0: Well, uh, let's maybe uh, one more to bring it back to Bitcoin uh, to uh, a, a better topic to finish on then. In your opinion, what would you like to see over the next one to two years uh, get implemented into uh, the Bitcoin network?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you mean like implemented into consensus code, I mean, I I might yeah. say not consensus rules. I might say not too much because I almost worry that we we do we do too much, and I want the protocol to ossify. But that's the controversial opinion; not everyone agrees with that. Okay, I kind of think Schnorr and Taproot. Which we didn't mention Tapri, but that's kind of like it's another thing along the same lines. Um, I think that kind of stuff, yeah. Let's 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 see that in because you know it's optional and it's going to be super good for privacy and and, and various like contracting. Technologies and
0: it's 2020. The the roadmap for that
2: they, they will they will vehemently like <laughs> disavow any kind of roadmap. By the by, they I mean just generally Bitcoin core developers. And, sure. But yeah, I mean, I from what I hear, I can imagine. The the problem is it's not just Schnorr. I think I said earlier it's this thing called MuSig, which is a lot more like a more complicated developed construction for multiSig using Schnorr. Uh, so it's a little bit more complicated. But I think they've written the code already, mostly at least for MuSig they have. Um, so, yeah, 2020 doesn't seem unreasonable, but who knows how it's going to get activated. That will be interesting. <laughs>
0: Do you see a big debate coming up with that?
2: No, it's just like because of, because BIP... Uh, oh, I forget the numbers now. Because BIP-8 was such an utter disaster for Segway, you know, with all that. Remember, like, the percentage signaling and all that. Everyone was using it as a political football. Sure. Uh, I don't know how they're going to activate it, but, um, I mean, maybe that whole, like, angle of things has dissipated. You now we've had... Bitcoin cash and, and bitmain and everything as everything has changed since then maybe it's okay I don't know
0: but in general your opinion is actually overall you would prefer to see the protocol ossify more than yeah
2: maybe. I think I think uh, I think so I like the fact that because once SegWit is in you have malleability fix which means you have contracts yep. which is why we have lightning. And if you have Schnorr, you kind of have the same, and Taproot would be like icing on the cake there. You you have the same thing, but you have like all the different transaction types looking more or less the same on chain and maybe saving some space too for scalability. So it's really, let's hope, yeah.
0: Adam, I think that's a good way to end it. Um, I want to uh, remind our listeners, uh, joinmarket.me, both for uh, the actual software and uh, Adam's blog is there uh, really nice blog posts actually some some are a bit too technical for me but I definitely like uh, like some of the sarcasm and the subtle uh, humor that you put into them it's it's quite it's quite good <laughs> uh, so yeah as we close it Adam any uh, any other thoughts or links where where else uh, should our listeners go
2: yeah um, just I mean I'm on github I'm Adam Isz, if you if you want to look me up there, that's that's right. That's Z. And I'm that's on Z for our American listeners. <laughs> yes, that's Z, and uh, I'm on Mastodon, uh, Waxwing. So that's that's the only place I kind of microblog. I don't use Twitter anymore. So if people
0: want you to, You migrated from Twitter. Huh?
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't use. I don't like. I don't like corporate social media, and I think everyone should abandon it.
0: Good. Okay. <laughs> Great, Adam. Well, yeah. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for joining us, and I uh, hope to talk to you soon.
2: Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye.